This is the Pop Culture Podcast, and this is our standard disclaimer. Be aware that the subject matter discussed this week will include massive spoilers about whatever movie, TV show, or other bit of media we talk about today. If you want to experience it in its original form, simple, then just don't listen to this podcast first. Go watch the movie, the TV show, read the book, read the comic, do whatever. Then get back to us feeling completely assured that you can listen to this podcast completely unspoiled. Consider this to be your one and only warning. Enjoy the show. Welcome again to another episode of the Pop Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Ayers, licensed professional counselor, suicide prevention trainer, and advocate, uh, long-term card-carrying geek. I know the stuff that generally worthless information in the world, and I spend a lot of time paying attention to it. You are joining me for what is episode 10 of my series that I've entitled 13 Reasons to Talk. I don't know if we'll get 13 reasons out of it or not. This thing has been an evolving thing as I've gone along. I plan to get 11 episodes out before the start of season 2 of 13 Reasons Why, upon which this series has been based. And boy, the time's getting close here. I'm not getting this done as quickly as I wanted to this week, but I am way ahead of what I've been doing before. So I feel good about that. But it's going to be a tight race to beat them to the clock when season two of 13 Reasons Why drops, I presume, at 12.01 a.m. this Friday, the 18th of May. Today being the 16th of May. I'm going to do what I can. We'll see what happens. Anyway as we've been talking about all these various aspects of 13 Reasons Why, we've examined the characters, we've examined uh, diagnosing the people in the series based on how their situations are presented, whether or not they've got mental illness, talking about some of the major themes of the series, bullying and sexual assault, and in and of itself, suicide and depression. Talking about my view of the series as something I think I don't know. There's a cynical part of me. Part of me says it was meant with good intentions. That it it was approached with good intentions to, I don't know, maybe be a teaching moment, so to speak, in the general public. It wasn't promoted heavily when it came out that I had noticed, and I'm pretty much a ear to the sounds that are being made by the movie TV industry. I'm pretty much aware of things. Didn't see this one coming. Didn't even know what was going on with it until it was being brought up as a question by concerned parents at trainings that were conducted by myself and others of my colleagues in the Chester County Suicide Prevention Task Force out here in Southeast Pennsylvania. So this thing kind of hit, and it makes me wonder, did they want to teach? Did they have much faith in the show? They didn't seem to promote it very heavily, but boy, the critter caught a life of its own by word of mouth amongst the young population for good and for ill. And if you want to get my thoughts on the good and or ill, uh, I believe that would be episode one, The Brush Fire, as I've entitled it. I won't reiterate all that here because, you know, you can listen to all of it in the original podcast. However, what I've got going on in my mind at this point in time today is a lot of people looking at and going, all right, so we've talked about all this, and what if we could go quote-unquote, go back in TV time, go back in fiction time, and what if we could have done something? What if the characters in the series could have done something 
for Hannah? What would that have looked like? What would they have done? How would they have known? How would they how would they look back now and see the things they didn't see during the course of events that unfolded in the flashback portions of season one, when we're watching all that build up to Hannah's eventual suicide? It's a good question, and a lot of people ask that. And it's something we don't talk about nearly, nearly, nearly enough in this country. I'm certain I've said it before in at least one episode. I may have said it more. If you're not aware of this fact, be aware of it. Suicide is the second leading cause of death amongst people aged 15 to 24. That's our high schoolers and college age kids. Let me say that again. Second leading cause of death. More than auto accidents. More than pretty much everything. If you're curious what number one is, it is unintentional accidents, which is a fairly all-encompassing thing. does include auto accidents. But auto accidents broken down by themselves? No. And if you want another scary thought and another discussion for another day, number three is homicides. So our 15 to 24-year-olds are dying to a large extent by suicides and homicides. I want you to think about that for a minute. It's a scary thought. But suicide is number two. So it's it's obviously something that needs to be talked about much more than it is. And I've said that before, and I'm not going to beat that horse anymore today. And yet people have lost track of so much of it. So the question starts to come down to, all right, so let's pretend we have a time machine and the world of Hannah Baker is real. And we wanted to go back and and say, okay, let's, let's go back and, and see what we could have seen at that time that would have told us that Hannah was in danger and that we needed to act and how we could have acted. I guess the first part of knowing how to act is knowing when to act. And we're going to take a look at that. Let's look at the history with Hannah. What did Hannah display? What did she exhibit during the course of all of this? So when you take a look at things that are considered primary risk factors for depression, primary risk factors for suicide, really, um, as well as symptoms of depression, we go back and we take a look at what did Hannah display. Let's start with, honestly, let's start clinically. Let's take a look at the the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, version 5. That is the guidebook that helps practitioners like myself make a determination of what is a diagnosis of the person sitting in front of us. Largely, we do this when we need to. Most times, we, we kind of do it as a communication thing. Mostly, it's used um, for billing purposes in many ways and for medical communication. So let's take a look at the digital, digital. Let's take a look at the clinical criteria for a depressive, a major depressive episode. And that's what normally somebody has in many ways, at least especially when we're looking at a character like Hannah, preceding a suicide attempt. All right, so number one, depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day as indicated either by subjective report on the part of the individual or observation by others. So when you say subjective report, we're talking about a person who says they feel sad or empty. If you're talking about observation by others, we're talking about, well, okay, the person looks depressed, they they sound depressed, they're crying a lot, they're irritable maybe if they're adolescents or, or children. And, okay, how much of that do we really think Hannah displayed? throughout the large portion of the the episode, of the series, rather. Not a ton. 
to be perfectly honest, she started reporting a lot of it. And let's be careful. We don't mix up things that she said in her tapes, which she would have recorded towards the end of that period of time represented in the flashbacks, as opposed to what we saw during the flashbacks. I know there was a part of time when she went and spoke with Dr. Not Dr. Ha! Mr. He wishes. Mr. Porter. And, and she reported some feelings of sadness and all that. But for the most part, this wasn't something we observed in her on a regular basis. We certainly observed periods of it. We certainly observed periods when she wasn't depressed. Eh, maybe you could look at it and say at times she seemed a little bit. It wasn't particularly blatant. Not in the view I look at it, and I've seen the episodes enough times to say I, it's just not there. It's not blatant. It's not something that people would observe. She wasn't walking around tearful. She wasn't walking around mopey. And she wasn't doing any of those stereotypical things like all oh, dressing in black. She wasn't letting her parents go, blah, blah, blah. She wasn't doing these things. So I wouldn't say that she was, throughout the course of the series, obviously depressed in report of her mood or observation. Okay. Number two, markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities, most of the day, nearly every day. And again, this could be what the patient reports, what the client reports. This could be what people observe. Yeah, it was really hard to tell with her. She seemed to enjoy a lot of aspects of her life. She enjoyed her poetry. She only backed out of that when she felt betrayed. She was enjoying that prior to that. She didn't have a lot of other activities, though, did she? She didn't seem to display much in the way of hobbies beyond the writing. She didn't display a lot of, uh, she was involved in a lot of school activities. She wasn't like Alex, who she was in jazz band and then quit jazz band. She wasn't a person involved in sports or cheerleading who started neglecting that, kind of like Jessica started neglecting her cheerleading responsibilities and practice. We didn't really see that displayed very much for Hannah. I'm not sure what Hannah's interests were outside of writing and whatever. She had a job. She quit her job towards the end. We'll get back to that. Number three, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain. And that's a change of more than 5% of body weight one way or the other. Or decrease or increase in appetite. I don't remember that being discussed with her at all, one way or the other. I think we saw that happening with Clay. We didn't see that happening with Hannah. Okay. Insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day. I think a lot of us are familiar with the term insomnia. I don't know that as many people are familiar with the term hypersomnia. And hypersomnia is pretty much what you might guess based on the parts of the word. Somnia being the part about sleep. So when you have insomnia, in means not, basically, lack of. Insomnia means not sleeping. Hypersomnia means hyper, means you're sleeping too much. Simple as that. I don't recall that being addressed even a tiny bit with her. More with Clay than with her. Number five, psychomotor agitation or retardation nearly every day. And if you're not aware, psychomotor simply means if you're shaking or your movement is in some way, shape, or form as shown through your mood or mental state. So a perfect simple example is a scared person shaking or shivering or a very depressed or tired person moving more slowly would be the retardation part of things. So, nope, didn't see that with her either. Number six, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day? Don't remember that being mentioned. Seven, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. 
Yeah, you know what? I definitely think she had expressed a good bit of that towards the end. And at the same time, to a large extent, I think what we heard her express was expressed in the tapes, not to others. It came up a bit. It was there. I'm not going to deny it. It was certainly there and I think might have been heard and or witnessed enough by enough people to perhaps have noticed that during the time period in which she was contemplating suicide. Number eight, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. No, I don't see that so much. She was smart kid. She knew what she wanted to do. She planned it out pretty thoroughly, wrote some really good stuff to record on tapes. Heck, I don't even know if she ad-libbed that. I guess it's not entirely clear. Did she make that up as she went along off her head? Did she write that and then read it? She just said that off her head. Smarter than I am. And meanwhile, finally, the last one, recurrent thoughts of death, and that doesn't include fear of dying, recurrent suicidal thoughts without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. So thoughts of suicide with or without a plan would have been a simpler way to write that, guys. I realize you're about a bunch of academics who wrote this stuff, but you could have written it a little more clearly at that moment in time. Just saying. Or a suicide attempt. Well, yeah, suicide attempt's pretty much an obvious sign. Well, why don't we just push that one aside for a minute, because I'm sitting there thinking it's kind of hard not to think somebody's depressed when they've made a suicide attempt. You need to put that in diagnostic criteria for us to figure it out. Ooh, might be depressed. Thanks, guys. So, and yes, I'm making fun of the DSM-5 and or the people who wrote it. Deal with it. There you go. Out of out of those nine criteria, essentially, we had eh, two and a half, maybe three. And technically, we had two before the third. Because I'll tell you, throughout the entirety of the series, she did not particularly clearly verbalized suicidal thoughts to anybody. She did drop some hints that people should have picked up on, especially at the end, that final meeting with Mr. Porter. She was all but smacking him in the face with a big stinking mackerel, telling him she was having suicidal thoughts, and he did little to pick that up and run with it. That was the final opportunity. Other than that, other than that moment, she didn't really talk about it with anybody. Here's what I'm saying in this thought. I would have to say that even looking at this and thinking of looking at her, it would be hard to have pinpointed her as someone at risk of having a major depressive episode, much less suicidal thoughts. It was a stretch. They did not really, really clearly portray her as someone who was experiencing a mental illness that would lead to suicide. They experienced, they ex- not experienced, pardon me, they portrayed her suicide attempt as event-driven. That her suicide came about because things happened, not because she was depressed. And I'm going to be perfectly honest that, and I think I've said it before, that's not the world's most accurate portrayal of why people take their lives. It's not about events as much as about how people perceive and interpret the events. And if you're perceiving and interpreting events to the point where you're thinking of suicide, it's largely because you are already experiencing a mental illness. Series missed that. I think they missed that in a big way because they didn't portray a character who anybody would have recognized as being at risk for suicide. 
And again, I think I said it before, maybe that was intentional. Maybe they wanted to illustrate this as, hey, look, it's not just about depressed people. Anybody can be pushed to the edge. I'm going to disagree. Plain and simple. So when, when you talk about risk factors for suicide, and these are things that necessarily exist maybe outside of the individual and their feelings and their thoughts, but, but aspects of them, their environment, their family, whatever. There's a lot of things you come up, you, you see come up over and over again. Things like prior suicide attempts is often listed as one of the top ones. Well, yeah, this is true. If there's a history of a suicide attempt on your part, you're often considered higher risk for later suicide attempts. Take note, there's also things like history of family suicide or history of friends committing suicide or a lot of suicides in, say, the... the um, Local area, so to speak, local epidemic of suicide, they might call. I've not seen a lot of those happen, but I would say, as I've said before, suicide contagion within a student population is not a myth. It's a real thing. Family history or her or, or an individual's history of being abused. Hannah was not abused. There was no suicide history for her. There was no suicide history reported for her family. Okay, no previous attempts on her part, obviously. History of mental health disorders, or particularly clinical depression, as they call it. Well, we just talked about that. She wasn't exhibiting a lot of that, was she? A lot of talk about history of alcohol and substance abuse. I would say to a large extent, with perhaps the large exception of Jessica, that what we saw displayed as substance use and abuse throughout the series, with, uh, again, maybe another exception, Justin and his mom, largely within the realm of a fairly typical adolescent experience and on the spectrum of use and abuse amongst those teens shown, Hannah's was a little bit more on the low side. There was some suggestions that she drank at times when her parents were out, um, so that maybe she drank more often than was shown in the series. And at the same time, I'd say... Yeah, it sounds about like what I did when I was a kid, to be perfectly honest. So I don't think there was anything there. And and quite frankly, in, in my view of things, some people look at it as, okay, well, increased use of alcohol and drugs is often showing that somebody is increasingly at risk for suicide. Or the fact that they use or abuse drugs or alcohol means they are more at risk for suicide. Eh, it's, it's a little debatable. You know, there, there's sometimes I think of those who are abusing drugs and alcohol, especially if you want to talk about things like heroin and meth, crystal meth in particular, you know, the, the things that really destroy people. And there's a part of me that questions if that person isn't really suicidal on some level and just kind of engaging in it as like a slow suicide rather than something they would do outright and immediately. Because... You got to know when you're getting to the point of heroin or, or meth, you're you're crossing a line and most people don't come back from that line. So is it really in some way, shape or form a, a suicidal inclination that just doesn't take the form of a sudden and decisive act? I don't know. It's, that's a debate for another day, perhaps. 
My bigger concern when you're talking about someone who's depressed and maybe suicidal is the fact that alcohol and other substances are disinhibitors. And that's where the big concern comes in, because a person who might have some suicidal thoughts but doesn't plan to act on those isn't at that point where they're going to maybe one day decides to go out and get drunk. And alcohol, one, is a depressant. Two, it's a disinhibitor. So you get more depressed. You get less inhibited, more likely to do things you wouldn't normally do. And maybe those thoughts you've toyed with a little bit suddenly become actions. And I've seen that happen. And that's where I'm more concerned oftentimes about those things. And that maybe once in a while people will intentionally overindulge or indulge more than they normally do in some drug or some substance. Kind of trying to turn, you know, trying to end their life, but not really, but figuring, ah, you know what, if it, if it works out that way, cool. Cool. Fate took over and God took over. Somebody took over and I'm dead. It's not really my fault. I wasn't trying to kill myself. It's a guilt avoidance thing. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Other things, risk factors, impulsive or aggressive tendencies. You know, we certainly did not see that in any way, shape or form in the character of Hannah. Cultural or religious beliefs that, that suicide can be considered a noble resolution to a personal dilemma? I don't recall even a moment throughout the course of the series that any character talked about religious background, much less how it related to suicide. So, no, we didn't see that there for her, and it didn't strike me that her, she or her family were especially religious in any way, shape, or form. Um, and likely, if it, they were, they would most likely, it seems, the way they're portrayed in Christian or Judeo-Christian in some way, shape, or form, and those religions do discourage suicide. Isolation and feeling being cut off from other people. There you go. I think, to an extent, some of these things, that the way they write it, the way they talk about it, they're thinking along the lines of somebody who is socially isolated because they live alone, because they have no friends, they have no family. Uh, they maybe live out in an area where there's a low population density and they don't get to interact with people very often. So they're just alone by themselves in their house all the time. This is a little bit different when we're talking about Hannah because some self-isolation started to occur on her part during the course of the series as she didn't share with her parents what was going on and had fewer and fewer friends as the series went on. Some of that was her doing. Some of that was because of the social situations going on. And eventually she even withdraws from Clay, feeling hurt at a time when he was angry with her and decided he hated her. So that's a little different. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more because that's more a behavior than it is a risk factor. Uh, barriers to accessing mental health treatment. Well, I don't think that was an issue for her if the only place she had to go for it was school. All right, maybe that's a bit of a barrier because Mr. Porter sucked. He was not a good counselor. So that one I'm going to say is doubtful. I'm going to suspect they're in California. I feel pretty confident that it's a fairly affluent area in which they live. There are therapists around. There are counselors around. Somebody was there to talk to if you reached out for it. Loss. Interesting factoid to note is that there are studies that show that in a majority of cases where people attempted to take their own life or successfully took their own life, they did so within two to three weeks following a significant negative event in their life, uh, oftentimes a loss. That could be a relationship. That could be 
social standing or social status or social contacts. That could be a job that you lose. That could be getting kicked out of school. That could be losing a lot of money. It could be a loved one who passes away. A loss. Loss is a big trigger when it comes to suicide attempts. And it is a key factor. And especially when you're looking at someone you think may already be at risk and you recognize that they've had a significant loss recently, you might want to watch that person a whole lot more closely. For Hannah, losses were spread out throughout the course of the season. The first loss would have been Justin because of the issue with the picture. I don't know how significant I call that one because they didn't go out that much, but, you know, for her it was her first kiss, if I remember correctly. All right. Then her friends, Alex and Jessica, when that whole thing broke up because Alex and Jessica started dating, that was a loss. And that was a further step towards social isolation for her. Then as her friendship with Courtney fell apart because Courtney threw her under the bus to avoid being outed, that was a loss. And then I think you take it towards the end there, the fact that she believed Clay didn't want to be friends with her anymore, that was a loss, and I think that was the biggest loss, with one other exception. The loss she experienced, the loss of sense of safety, of self-personal safety when she was raped. That was a loss. And you can look at the financial situation in her family home, they hadn't lost anything yet, but there were certainly concerns expressed, and she she physically lost money. I don't categorize that the same way, because her parents were probably going to be okay because of that. It was a big sum of money, but it was hardly a bankrupting sum of money. But I think those two final losses, losing Clay, losing her sense of personal safety, and personal sense of worth because of the rape, were huge. Absolutely huge. For anybody to deal with. Another thing's physical illness, easy access to lethal means. Well, that varies in a lot of ways. There's a lot of ways people can decide to end their lives. And easy access can mean taking a walk, taking a bus, taking a drive to a bridge. It can mean buying a gun. It can mean having guns in the house that you can easily get to. It can mean having a stockpile of pills. It can mean going to the grocery store and buying pills. Easy access to lethal means is a little bit of a foggy term. I will say that if somebody has stuff in the house they can use and have been thinking about using, consider that easy access to lethal means. She went and she bought razors. Easy? Eh, I take it back. She didn't buy them. <laughs> she took them from her parents' store with permission. At least I think she did. That's what I remember happened. So anyway, a big one I wanted to highlight was as a risk factor, unwillingness to seek help because of the stigma attached to mental health or to suicidal thoughts. I, I quoted a, a statistic in a previous episode. I'm not 100% certain how accurate it is these days, how much it has changed, but when they talk about 20% or 25% perhaps of the population, the adult population out there suffers from some form of mental illness, but 10% of those seek help. Digest that for a moment. That means there's a lot of people out there that could be getting help who are not. And where is that going to lead to in the end? Well, 
We don't know the answer to that, but what we see is what happened here. And the only reason I kind of talk about this a little bit is because it's not clear why Hannah did not go for more help. Why she didn't try to talk to someone besides Porter. Why she didn't talk to her parents. Why she didn't talk to Clay. Why didn't she, she didn't tell somebody really what she was feeling in a clear manner that she would get some help. She was having the thoughts. And even kind of backing up to talk about having those suicidal thoughts and thoughts of death. It's not clear how pervasive those were, but her poem she wrote certainly mentioned a lot of that, didn't it? It talked a lot about things that suggested potential death, drowning, things like that, without saying the word, without being in, beating you over the head blatant. But certainly she seemed to have some thoughts of hopelessness and helplessness that were there and had been around. Beyond that poem, yeah, I don't think we know exactly how much she was thinking about it. And I don't know that there's anything to suggest that she was concerned about stigma because she didn't talk about it. She just didn't do it. That may have been something that the writers had in their mind was in the back of her head, but I don't know. Don't know. But I'm certainly to say just the fact of saying unwillingness to seek help, that was key in her character. That's a person who did not tell the people who were important to her what was going on with her and gave them little to no chance to help her. And that's where things ended up where they ended up. So, when you talk about the other side, protective factors, resiliency factors, as we'll call them, things that people have about themselves or in their lives that help mitigate depression and suicidal thoughts, help keep them from following through on those kinds of thoughts, that keep them from taking action to end their lives. Hannah had a decent amount of those, it seems, in some ways. She did have family and community support connected to this. Now, she lost a lot of that as the series went by, but her parents never stopped supporting her and rarely became angry at her. Clay became angry at her exactly once. And how many times did she get angry at him and walk away? Wow, girl. Hypocritical much. <laughs> um, she seemed to have skills in problem solving. She was a smart girl. She dealt with a lot of things directly. Conflict resolution, when she had problems, she talked to people, she told them what she was feeling, she expressed to them things that a lot of people don't get around to expressing, and she used nonviolent ways of dealing with disputes. She had it together compared to a lot of people, certainly more so than, say, let's look at Montgomery or Courtney or whatever. Hannah was never someone to throw somebody else under the bus to cover her own ass. She confronted people who she felt had wronged her and did so directly. So, you know, that's where I have a problem with some of this is the way they displayed it, as this was not a person who was necessarily someone that would end up taking her life. I'm gonna, there's gonna be a caveat to that. We'll get back to it. And again, we don't know what other things are there. Well, okay. Some of the lists I see I don't care for because they really focus very hard on effective clinical care for mental health or substance abuse disorders or having access to a variety of clinical interventions to help with that. Guess what? I'm a practitioner of mental health. <laughs> I, I'm a counselor. I, I, I'm i sorry, when you look at five or six protective factors, resiliency factors, and they're all about getting treatment, stop it. Let's look at some things that the individual has within themselves and as, as part of their world, besides what professionals can do for them. Yes, we're wonderful. We're great. I'm the best. <laughs> but it's not all about me. It's not all about us. Somebody wants to promote it that way. That's on them. That's maybe the CDC's website is pushing that. 
But, and the other thing, again, cultural and religious beliefs that discourage suicide. Well, we don't know. She never expressed it. We don't know. Her, her religious beliefs, one way or the other, I don't know how they affected what's going on. Another resiliency factor, self-esteem, a sense of self-worth. Well, she had that most of the series, most of the season. And yet she struggled with it at times, but most of that is what we heard in her tapes, which was towards the end before she was going to do it. So a lot of what happened to her eroded that sense of self-worth and self-value. I'll admit, as it would, I think, a lot of people. But there just seemed to be an inordinate amount of self-criticism she directed towards herself. So it's up and down. Another one of those resiliency factors is a sense of purpose or meaning in life. I don't know how that clear that was with her character and the portrayal of her character. I don't, I would say there is an absence of anything clear that was dear to her, important to her, that, you know, a pet that depended on her, a family member that depended on her or looked up to her. She had no siblings, so she certainly didn't have the role of setting an example for younger siblings. Two-parent household, so she wasn't parentified in some way where she was taking care of siblings in place of a missing parent. Yeah, I could say she maybe was lacking that. I think there were certainly some resiliency factors in the sense that she was pretty much a smart young lady, portrayed as a smart young lady, who certainly extended herself to help others when the opportunity presented. Didn't seem to put as much effort into helping herself when she needed. Overall... It's a little, in my mind, questionable in how she was portrayed that she is someone that people would have noticed as being in need of intervention. That it would be very difficult for anybody to go back in time and change what had happened, fix what happened. I don't know if that's realistic in this case. So that's looking at that. Meanwhile... Were there behavioral clues that Hannah exhibited that might have suggested, hey, we need to reach out to this person. She needs help. I would say there were a bit of those. Some of them were so subtle as to, especially for a series and a season that tended to be pretty upfront with what was being said, there were a few that were pretty subtle. Things you may not necessarily notice unless you knew to look at them. Some of the things we talked about, Already, the, the self-isolation, the slow withdrawal from social circles. Again, some of that was about her. Some of that was about what they did. But she tended to withdraw herself. She tended to pull herself back. She didn't reach out to people when she needed to. She didn't involve her parents. She didn't involve her closest friends. There were other things she did. Self-criticism and self-blame. She blamed herself for her grades not being good enough. She blamed herself about her family finances and, and the one thing she did wrong in all of that. It's not like there weren't problems going on the whole time. The $700 were not going to bankrupt them. But she did that one thing at that one time that she felt she was a burden. She blamed herself for Jeff's death, which really wasn't her fault. And then eventually when it came down to having been raped, she blamed herself for that and decided she deserved everything that was happening to her. So for whatever reason, it's unclear. It didn't come from her parents for that we saw. It certainly didn't come from a sibling or those kinds of interactions. For some reason, Hannah was inclined to blame herself for a lot of things, almost blaming herself to a large extent for not being perfect. And we'll get back to that in a second. You know, later we see her making statements that people aren't picking up on because maybe because they're scattered and they're in different venues. She talks in episode nine about never growing old. She talks in her poem 
about drowning and expresses feels like you're drowning when you've got nothing left and no one. And again, some of that was in the tapes. So we don't know how much of that she said to anybody else that as opposed to saying it into a cassette recorder. But her poem says a lot of things and suggests somebody that's struggling and at least feeling overwhelmed, if not feeling flat out hopeless. We do see a couple of behavioral changes, a couple of clues that tip us off later on. One of them is I'm a little uncertain, but it happens midway through, somewhere between the flashbacks and the run-up to the suicide, where she makes a significant change in her look and cuts her long hair into a shoulder-length bob. And if there's anybody out there that's a hairstylist and says, I just identified her hair incorrectly, okay, fine. I don't know. I'm calling it a bob. So deal with it. So that, and we notice towards the end where she quits the job at the movie theater. Quits it, turns in her uniform, gives up on that. That was maybe something you could have called an interest, something she seemed to enjoy, if maybe only for the interaction with Clay. But that's where things go. These things change, and these maybe are little, very subtle clues that something was going on. Certainly, she had some situational things going on. If you look at the entire series, season, I should say, I keep saying series, season, she definitely had some situational things with the losses, loss of friends, the humiliation that occurred with being raped and being slut-shamed at school. Those are big. The financial problems that her parents were experiencing, that's important. And again, I repeat it, the rape. There were a lot of situational things going on, but I wonder how many people had all the puzzle, because clearly nobody until the tapes got out knew she'd been raped. Apparently not even Bryce, because he didn't think he raped anybody. She knew she was raped. She was the only one. If you look at that, if somebody around her is observant enough to notice these very subtle clues that she's dropping and recognize the situation even without the rape included yeah they might recognize somebody who is who is at risk a bit who maybe could use some help but i would still say that hannah would have been a hard catch and one other reason why i think she might have been a hard catch because again i've I've made comments repeatedly about how she seemed to be a young lady who had a lot of things going for her pretty solid family pretty solid parents she was smart she was resilient in many ways she oftentimes made very um, self-protective, self-defensive choices. I think I'm choosing my words poorly because I'm lacking the word I want. She made choices that weren't self-destructive. Let's put it that way. She wasn't abusing a bunch of drugs and alcohol. She wasn't putting herself in risky situations. She wasn't acting out. She wasn't blowing off school. She worked and kept, you know, kept up her life in a responsible manner for a teenager. This is someone who perhaps had in some way some unrealistic expectations towards herself, perhaps looked at herself with a bit of a perfectionistic filter. And as much as we talk about people with all these perhaps blatant signs of depression, blatant signs of suicide risk, and all the ones that we think were, you know, we put it together and we look back and we go, yeah, we could see that happening. It's the people we don't see that are most at risk. It's the perfectionists. It's the high achievers. It's the ones out there who, and it's not all high achievers, don't misunderstand me, but it's the ones out there that are secretly suffering to be perfect because they feel they have to and nothing else is acceptable and nothing less will do. And the slightest imperfection is seen as a tragedy by them. And maybe they're the ones who are involved in a bunch of things, and they are straight A, and they are student government, and they are athletics, and they are band, and they are this and that and the other. 
And it seems they've got the whole world at their feet and they've got everything going for them. Meanwhile, inside, they are feeling incredible pressure day to day to function and do all this stuff for complete fear out of being imperfect, of making a mistake, of getting a bad grade, of missing something somewhere. For whatever reason, maybe it's parental pressure put on them. Maybe it's family history and they've got these two high-achieving siblings above them and they feel they need to fit in with that mold and match what they did and they never feel like they can and they feel completely inadequate all the time even though they're doing wonderfully. Whatever. These folks will usually suffer in silence because to admit they are suffering is to admit imperfection and that's what they don't do. They won't do that. They will avoid that because that's imperfection and they aren't willing to accept that in themselves or they think their family's not willing to accept that in them. And oftentimes what they will do is they will suffer in silence, trying to be perfect, trying to keep that mask on until eventually something breaks. Something goes wrong. Something can't be fixed. There's a mess they made that they're never going to get out of. And for them, it's the end of the world. For them, it means they have screwed up to the point that they cannot bear it anymore. Or maybe they haven't even screwed up and they just can't bear the pressure anymore. And that's when they think about it. And when they go, they often go quick because they're not going to tell anybody. They're not going to show anybody. They're going to be the stealth kids that are at risk. And unfortunately, being high achievers, when it comes time to doing something, they usually do it right and they think it out and their suicide plan is probably going to work. And maybe that's a little bit of what Hannah was. If we're going to characterize her in, in that sense, we're going to pretend she's a real person for a moment and pretend that that was considered. Maybe that was part of it, that for her to admit she needed help, it's too hard. It required too much. It was admitting too much imperfection. and She didn't want to do that. She had enough blame for herself. She had enough guilt over what she wasn't doing right. Maybe for her, the last thing she was going to do was also admit that she was, quote-unquote, crazy. And there's the stigma. So that's the thought. And that means that's a very difficult catch. Those situations are very hard for someone to intervene. So that's it. That's where we're at. That's the things. And all these things I've talked about, are these are all the things that you would look for, you would keep an eye out for in an individual that could be at risk. They're typically not going to give you the obvious things and tell you up front in advance, I'm going to kill myself, or I'm going to end my life, I'm going to commit suicide, or I wish I were dead. They're usually not going to tell you that very blatantly. They're going to give you the subtle things. They're going to give you poems. They're going to put out songs or, or, or post song lyrics written even by somebody else that express what they're feeling, but do so in a vague manner. They might say things like, I won't be around much longer, or I'm not going to grow old, or my family would be better off without me. That's usually what's going to be heard first, if you even get that one. A lot of times it's even more vague than that. And, of course, we've talked about how bullying played a big role in this. Essentially, if you really want to bottom line it, Hannah was bullied to death. That's what happened to her. But now we have other people in the series that we saw were at risk and are at risk, and maybe even one that tried to end his life. Death by someone close, by suicide, that's a big one. It really is. And don't rule out, and this is actually something that, that I skipped over, too, when we are talking about risk factors, recent unwanted move. We're not clear of the whole circumstance, but we do know that as the series was beginning, Hannah was new to that school, to that neighborhood. And she'd had a bad experience in another school. So you got to remember, too, when we talked about a lot of this, and I've talked about it before, depression, anxiety, a lot of times has roots in people feeling out of control in their life. When you're a kid, when you're an adolescent and your parents move, you're going with them. 
You don't have any control over it. You're going to go where they take you, and you're going to deal with it. You're going to adapt. Hannah adapted pretty well. She made friends pretty quickly. She's a charming young lady. We saw initially with the, she met with that first counselor and Jessica. Hey, she and Jessica clicked almost immediately. Not a kid who tended to isolate herself, was Hannah. So we're not clear how hard that move was on her, but it's safe to assume it was fairly hard. That she left friends behind and was put into a new situation, a new neighborhood against her will. So you keep that in mind. One of the things that's a big one, too, and that we don't didn't talk about, we didn't see her doing this, putting personal affairs in order or giving away prized possessions and things like that, almost like uh, being the executor of your own will prior to ending your life is a common behavior you might see amongst adolescents and adults who are contemplating suicide. And, of course, sudden changes, sudden changes in interests or behaviors, you know, suddenly very religious when you never were, or suddenly hardly religious at all when you'd always been very involved. Sudden decrease in work or school performance is one of those things that people typically will see and expect. That's kind of a stereotypical thing. Then there are the kids who out there are, might suddenly display sudden uptick, sudden improvement in their academic performance. That's a strange one. You don't see it very commonly, but some of that has to do with the fact that maybe you've got one of these kids who feels they should be doing much better academically. And then they suddenly put forth that final effort to say, I'm going to do this, and if I can't do it, I'm going to end my life. That's sometimes what you're seeing. And oftentimes for them, whatever they get to, even if it's an improvement, may not be enough. So now that we've talked about all the various risk factors, situational factors, behavioral clues, and, and what depression looks like, now it's time to talk about what you would do if you encountered somebody in that situation, for a lot of folks that aren't familiar with dealing with this kind of thing, it's probably the scariest part. That's the part where you are feeling out of your depth. You're feeling scared, I'm certain. You're feeling nervous. You're not sure what's going to happen. Well, if that's the case, if you think you see somebody in that kind of situation and you really, really don't know what to do, go find somebody who does. Go find a school counselor. Go find a psychologist. Go find Call a crisis hotline and talk to them about what you're seeing. Call somebody. If it's a friend of yours at school, and talk to a parent. Talk to their parent. Talk to a principal. Talk to an authority figure at school. Talk to a teacher you trust. You want to get a hold of somebody somewhere that knows how to react and knows how to ask the right questions to assist this person that you think you see being in need. That's really the biggest step in many cases, is asking a question. Because the person who's struggling with this stuff in the end, and I think they did display this pretty well with Hannah's discussion with Mr. Porter uh, at, towards the end of the season one, she wanted somebody to know what she was feeling. But she was afraid to say it directly. She was afraid to express it directly. She wanted him to know. She wanted him to recognize what was going on. Unfortunately, the conversation got derailed talking about a rape and his poor-ass response to both the rape and the expressions of suicidal thoughts. She was reaching out. Hannah was reaching out in that moment and wasn't getting the response she was looking for. As a matter of fact, she got exactly the opposite response of what she was hoping for. And that's what a lot of people dealing with these kinds of thoughts and feelings 
are afraid of is getting that response that either doesn't seem to care, doesn't seem to understand, or worse yet, judges them for feeling what they're feeling, decides they're crazy, decides they're wrong, gets angry at them for thinking of it, whatever. And that's part of what holds them back. So what they're likely to feel is a sense of relief that somebody reached out, is a sense of relief that they can now talk about this with somebody who's not going to judge them. And some of them may fear, legitimately, that somebody somewhere is going to force them to go into a hospital. And let's be honest, it, just the idea of having some thoughts of suicide is not justification enough to put somebody in a hospital. Hospitals are there to keep people safe, who otherwise would be unsafe, who otherwise would harm themselves or harm somebody else. They're not there to put people in because they are having thoughts. Now, yes, if you're on the verge of acting, yeah, you go in the hospital because that's keeping you safe. If you're just having some thoughts, if you really don't want to do it, then you know what? Then you talk to somebody. Then you get in contact with a counselor or, or get in a program that's not in the hospital. You don't need to go in the hospital. Trust me. 19 years working in an acute care program. You don't need to go in the hospital just because you've had some suicidal thoughts. And Hannah wouldn't have needed to go in the hospital at that point in time, depending on exactly what she said. If she said, well, you know, I'm planning on going home and doing this tonight right now, and I've got it all set up, and I'm probably going to do it, even though I'm going to talk to you about it. Okay, put her in the hospital. But that's not what we said. That's not what she said. <laughs> and it's not what we heard. So the important thing is getting somebody somewhere to talk to the person who's at risk. There are trainings out there to help you learn how to do that. Part of what you're hearing with this episode is, is me going through a lot of the things we talk about in these trainings. The training model that I do is called QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer. That's what it stands for. It's meant for lay people. And it's typically a two-hour training. There's videos involved, and there's a lot more of an interaction between the trainees and the trainers. That's certainly why, one, I'm not considering this training, and don't any of you out there consider this a training. It's not. The other most prominent one out there is called Psychological First Aid. That is a significantly more extensive training and takes a good bit more time than does QPR. And could be for lay people, could be for clinical people, either or. If that's something in which you have interest, I encourage you to seek out opportunities to do that. If you are listening in the area around Chester County, Pennsylvania, you can give us a call at the Chester County Suicide Prevention Task Force. And you can reach us by calling 610-344-6265. That's one way to get a QPR training set up. You can also find us at our website, which is ChesterCountySuicidePrevention.com. And there are pretty much almost always a suicide prevention task force in most counties, probably in whatever county you're in where you're listening to this. Those are your best resources. I recommend you Google that. You can also look to organizations like the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They can be located at AFSP.org. That's an organization that works just as we do for suicide prevention and trainings about that. Another organization called the Suicide Prevention Resource Center, and that is at sprc.org. Again, they provide trainings, they provide education and information, as well as support. And in the end, you know, if you need to, 
keep in mind, if you think you have somebody that needs some assistance, if you are somebody that needs assistance, you want to have kind of in the back of your mind the availability of the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. It's a national number you can call from anywhere. It's toll-free, of course. And talk to someone. And that someone can perhaps provide some education if you're dealing with someone who's having suicidal thoughts, or they can help you if you are having suicidal thoughts. That number is 800-273-8255. If you like to use the letters instead of numbers, it's 800-273-TALK. And for those that don't know, it's kind of a rarely known thing. There actually is a chat line as well, a suicide prevention chat number that you can use. Um, I shouldn't say chat, I guess. I want to say text is what I mean to say. Similar, but it's for those who just aren't comfortable talking on phones, as a lot of young people are these days. It's a simple number to remember, 741-741. So in the end, what I'd like to say is if, if you feel that there's someone that you know Someone who would be like Hannah. What would somebody do for the Hannah that they've identified as in trouble? I think, really, if you look in the TV series, if you look in 13 Reasons Why, the two characters who are more obviously at risk that more likely would get the attention of somebody for intervention would be Clay and Alex during the quote-unquote present-day portion of the series rather than the flashbacks. Those two are, are very clearly headed for problems and need to talk to somebody. Even if they're not suicidal, even if they aren't going to do it, Clay still needs to talk to somebody. He's got to process his grief and his loss and his guilt. Alex really could stand to talk to somebody if he survives being shot. Someone that can help him deal with his own guilt and his own depression. Both of them were people very clearly in need of some sort of help and some sort of counseling, and nobody did anything. And sadly, Clay's parents could see it happening. They didn't do anything. I don't know, again, what. The point there was that, other than the fact that, hey, if they got him some help and he started doing something else, maybe that changes the entire series and we no longer have a story. Keep it in mind, many of the decisions of characters in this story and in most movies and TV shows are driven by what mo moves the plot forward. So here we have these two individuals, and let's say you've been trained in suicide prevention. What would you do? What would you end up doing? You'd probably end up sitting down trying to talk to them privately and ask them, What's happening? What's going on? You would approach that situation prepared as much as you can. In other words, you would know off the top of your head, or you would already have written down and with you the numbers for the suicide prevention hotline or the text line. You would have perhaps local resources. You would perhaps do it in a manner which would allow you to maybe encourage that person to get to help quickly. And you would be prepared to hear what they had to say in a non-judgmental way, because again, that's what these people are looking for. They don't want to be judged for what they're feeling, and they're scared of it. They're probably scaring themselves a little bit as well, in most cases. And the last thing they want, though, is somebody else to judge them and criticize them. But you're going to have a conversation. You're going to talk to them. You're going to ask them directly what's going on, and are you having thoughts of suicide? Are you thinking of killing yourself? Are you thinking of ending your life? Tough questions to ask, which is why my first thing I said was, if you don't know that you can bring yourself to talk to somebody about this, find somebody who can. Find somebody who knows how to do it. The most important thing is that the question gets asked, and it's a little less important who asks it, and slightly less important how it's asked, but it's important that it be asked in a way that encourages the person to open up 
rather than unintentionally shutting them down. And that's not an easy thing to do. And I could be tempted to dig into that a little bit. I'm not going to because what I don't want to do is in any way, shape, or form start to get into what really would be more of a training. This is an education, and the main point for me was to make sure that people understand how to identify somebody at risk and what they can do. And the best thing you can do is get a good, solid training if you ever want to be able to be in a position to help somebody. It's not hard to get the trainings. And again, QPR is a two-hour commitment. It's not a difficult thing to do, and it's something that can last you for a lifetime so that you're able to help somebody if you ever encounter somebody in need. And it's free. At least it is when we provide it. I think in most cases it would be. But that's what happens. We talk to people. We ask them what's going on. Regardless of training or not, if you're sitting here now and you know somebody that's at risk like this and you have no other option, yeah, like you don't have time to wait for a training to get set up and go do that a couple weeks later. Get a hold of somebody or just talk to that person. Talk to that friend. Talk to that family member. Get it out there, but be prepared to talk about it in a way that is more about what they're feeling and less about your fear. Yeah, you're probably afraid of what they're going to do, and you're probably afraid that they're going to do something that would take them away from you, take them out of your life, and that's not what you want. Don't let that fear drive you. Don't let that fear get in the way of having an open conversation with someone that you care about whose feelings are important to you. Because if you're not careful, you may end up getting an answer that's not truthful, and you may not be able to get to the root of the problem that you're trying to solve. So that's important to keep in mind. Talking really, in the end, is the key. All you got to do is reach out. Providing a little bit of hope is pretty much what is necessary to keep somebody from doing something to harm themselves, to end their life. It's, it's a little seed. It seems like a little thing. I know it sounds like it's simple. It's not that simple because it doesn't mean they're permanently fixed, quote unquote. They're not permanently saved, but it means you get them in that moment where you're talking to them and now maybe you can encourage them to get some help. You can maybe encourage them to call suicide prevention hotline with you there or walk down to the counselor's office at the school, or get on the phone with somebody that can schedule an appointment for them. Or if perhaps the person in question is a coworker, somebody you work with you think is at risk, be aware that many employers have an employee assistance program, EAP for short. You may have heard it talked about before, but may not have been aware of what it is. One of their primary functions is to help get people connected with free counseling. Uh, those programs will offer uh, some number of free counseling sessions to individuals employed by the company, as well as their family members, and it's worth looking into. You can make a call with that coworker together to the EAP, help them get talking to somebody there, and see what you can get them set up with. That could be an intervention to assist when need be. So the main idea is, and that's this is this kind of a very bare bones idea of QPR. I was talking about that question persuade, refer. Asking the question, talking to people, encouraging them to get help, and then helping them get connected with someone, some organization that can assist. So it's important that, you know, if you get involved in any of this, if you have any concerns about somebody in your life, know where the crisis hotline numbers are in your county, Google that. Crisis hotline number. Or if you may add, may, maybe need to add on to it, mental health crisis hotline number. It may be necessary to get the correct search results. But there's still the suicide prevention hotline. There's 911. When all else fails, 911 will be able to get the people you need to help when you need them to help. And 
an EAP or know where the local counselors are in the area, know their phone numbers, have that available. Obviously, if you're a high school or middle school or, heaven forbid, an elementary school kid, know where the counselor's office is. Or at the very least, know where the principal's office is because I can tell you there's a good chance, pretty good chance, I think, I think I'm not going out on a limb here, that the office staff at the very least knows who and where the counselor is. They will get you to who you need to get to. And heck, if it's easiest, if it's closest, if that's too far to go, find a teacher. The teachers know who these people are. There are options there. Be aware of what those options are. And hopefully be prepared with the the knowledge of those options when you go to talk to somebody. And be aware, too, that if you think it can't wait, don't wait. Don't wait any longer than you think is okay. If your gut tells you that something is imminent, then you know what? Act as quickly as you can. You don't know how much time you have. And taking too long to prepare could sometimes become an issue. That's why it's best to have these trainings in advance and to have this knowledge in advance and to have this information somewhere so that maybe you have the opportunity to act in the moment when you need to and still have that knowledge without having to do a lot of preparation ahead of time. It's, it's not an easy thing. It's a difficult thing to figure out. There's no simple answer to any of it. Here we go. We are down to the home stretch. We are coming up on the new season of 13 Reasons Why. My promise was to get these episodes out before that started. And I'm cutting it a little close. <laughs> I'm cutting it close, but I'm going to get it done. Have this one the day before, and I'll release the final episode the day of. So technically, I might be a little bit behind, but unless a lot of you are getting up really early to watch this or staying up really late to watch the series when it comes out, uh, I'll probably still be ahead of you. You can probably still hear me before them, if anybody wants to. (laughs) So I thank you for joining me again. I hope you found this educational. I encourage you to look into suicide prevention services, trainings, and organizations if you want to help out in any way or at least help yourself become prepared to ever deal with this. We need more talking about it. We need to reduce the stigma of this and help get more people involved. We absolutely can always use the help and we encourage people to get involved as much as possible. I thank you again. I hope you found this reasonably entertaining and educational. I appreciate it if you've been listening through most of the episodes and I hope you continue to stay with me as we start to branch out into other areas following the end of this week. I will be moving probably to a bi-weekly schedule is my plan at this point. And I plan to stick to that. As always, be kind to everyone you meet. You never know what battles they are fighting. Also, keep in mind that everything you see on TV is not necessarily accurate. My job is to help you differentiate accuracies from inaccuracies. Thanks again. Take care.